It's time for America Outdoors Radio, the show that covers the outdoor scene across the U.S. of A. and the entire continent. Fishing, hunting, conservation, outdoor recreation, and great destinations, we cover it all every week. It's your country, your outdoors. Let's explore it together with your host, John Cruz. Welcome to another edition of America Outdoors Radio, and this is a special weekend for some of us because it's the opening weekend of hunting season. If you're in Georgia or Arkansas, it's the muzzleloader opener for deer. In Washington State, there's a lot of deer hunters going out for the modern firearm season that opens this weekend. And something else that opens this weekend is waterfowl season in Washington State. That's where I live, and once again, you'll find me in a blind, hoping to shoot a limit of ducks on opening morning. It's something I've been doing for about 45 years now. I've only missed it a few times when I've been in the service, and these opening weekend memories are some of the fondest ones I have. They started out when I was just a 13-year-old kid going out with my dad to the north end of Potholes Reservoir in eastern Washington, an area full of sand dunes and brush and little ponds that dotted the landscape that were full of ducks. We're talking about mallards and widgeon and gadwall and especially green-winged teal. After a couple of years, my brother started coming along, and with the competition fierce for the good blinds at the good ponds, I started camping out the night before and was soon joined by my best friend Rusty Johnston. Sometimes we'd hike out to ponds, sometimes we would take a small boat and head out to an island or a peninsula, And over time, my father and my brother, they aged out of the sport. But my son started coming along. And later, my daughter started coming along too. And you know, there's things I love about opening weekend that really don't have anything to do with the actual hunting and shooting of the waterfowl either. Take, for example, the tradition of my mother always packing us a lunch sandwiches that were roast beef with Havarti cheese or black forest ham with Havarti cheese. And oh, and we sure love to dig into those during our day of hunting. Another tradition that we developed when we were camping was our opening day meal. And that was always freshly harvested duck breasts. Sometimes in top ramen, sometimes over rice, but always delicious after a full day of hunting. And another tradition Well, listening to college football around the campfire with some adult beverages. I still remember one evening we were tuning into a station and there was a team playing the Fresno State Bulldogs, but we couldn't figure out who they were. They were just referred to as the Broncos. And you could swear this was a local station that we were listening to in eastern Washington. It turns out it wasn't. It was the Boise State Broncos and our current affiliate. KBOI AM 670 that broadcasts Boise State Bronco football has a booming signal that broadcasts not only through much of Idaho, but all the way to the Cascades in both Oregon and Washington, and can even be heard all the way to Edmonton, Alberta at night. Since the Broncos played a lot of evening games, they soon became a favorite of ours, and we became Boise State Bronco fans thanks to our opening weekend duck camp tradition. This weekend, it'll once again be my best friend Rusty and I heading out to a blind in the early morning and with just as much anticipation as the first time I hunted with my dad, we'll be waiting for the ducks to show up and see if we can get a limit on opening day. Here's hoping your opening weekend goes well too, whether you're after ducks or pheasant or deer or anything else out there. This week on the show, we've got some great guests for you. One of them is Scott Croft. He is with Boat US. And in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian, he's got some great advice 
for any of you who have damaged boats and are trying to deal with them. Five tips to be exact that you really want to pay attention to. And after that, we're going to talk to Scott about all these boats that'll, pun intended here, flood the market and be for sale, not just in Florida, but in all sorts of states north of there. And just like cars that flood the used car market after a hurricane, some of these are not going to be in the best of shape. Scott will tell you what to look for so that you don't get taken when you buy a boat. We're also going to tell you about something very special our friends at Henry Repeating Arms are doing. They are selling 1,000 limited edition 25th anniversary Golden Boy rifles. You're going to want to hear about this, and you're going to want to hear about the charities and organizations that are going to benefit from the sale of these firearms. And Henry is going to donate $1 million. All the proceeds from these firearms will be going to charitable causes through their Guns for Great Causes program. We'll tell you more about this towards the end of the show today. Another guest we'll talk to today is my old friend and globe-trotting big-game hunter, Keith Kellogg. We've had him on the show before talking about hunting muskox in Greenland and hunting other species in Russia. And now he's just gotten back from a multi-species hunt in Mongolia, of all places. He's going to tell you about that country, really interesting, and about the animals he hunted there. This will be an extended two-part conversation. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Before we get into that, though, we've got a new product to tell you about, and if you're an angler, I think you're going to be very interested in this one. Our first guest today on America Outdoors Radio is Justin Broliard. He is with Gunpowder Inc., and they do a lot of PR work for Pure Fishing and also for Fraybill, makers of nets. You've probably seen those in sporting goods stores around you and probably on several boats that you've been fishing on, too. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. So I've got to talk about the new conservation folding net that Fraybill is coming out with. This is really, really innovative and ingenious because the net itself, the hoop folds in half. I've never seen that before. And boy, that is great when you are limited on storage space. Exactly. It keys in on that storage. The net actually folds in half, snaps together with a magnet, makes it easy for on-boat storage as well as off-season storage in the garage or the attic or wherever. I'm actually amazed nobody's thought of this before. Is this the only net like this on the market? That may not be the case. There may be an off-brand that I'm not familiar with, or you as well, but like I said, the conservation series sort of touches on different nets for what, whatever anyone's need would be. And the key with this one is just add on to that line and just make it a lot easier for the angler. Why is it called the conservation net? So there's a rubber mesh, uh, which is better for the fish and handling of the fish. It's easier to get your lures out. It's better for the fishes, the slime and whatnot on some of the fish. And it's very light, compact. I think that's sort of where that comes through, the fish care. I completely understand that. And it comes with an aluminum handle, molded rubber grip, Mm -hmm. like that. And it comes in, what, six different sizes? Yeah, six sizes. I'm not going to list all of them, but it's obviously a smaller and they get larger up to the largest size. So fresh water, salt water, and yeah, it's just something that anybody could utilize and get that folding feature in. Okay, so bottom line is anything from panfish and trout all the way up to salmon and maybe even stripers too, this folding net, you know, I've got a bass boat, and as much storage as we have on the bass boat, I've got to admit, 
the net takes up a lot of room. I would love to have one of these. I think a lot of anglers are going to want these on their boats because it is so compact when you fold that hoop in half. Absolutely. And the other key is you're not always on your boat or fishing by yourself. If you're going with a buddy, you can throw it in the back of a car or a back of a truck easy and, and just takes up less space in general. And off-season storage, uh, like I said as well, when a lot of us northern folks put the boat away for the winter, you either got to keep stuff in the boat throughout the winter or I like to have access to it in the off-season just for maintenance and, and inventory purposes. So it makes it easy to throw it in a, a downstairs closet or just wherever it is needed. It's the conservation folding net from Frey Bill. It retails from $79.99 to $129.99, depending on the size you were looking for. Last question is this, when is it going to be available in stores? So it's supposed to be October, and uh, so you, you may start seeing it trickle into the, the retailers, um, but inventory has been an issue, but this one is available October 2022, so everyone should start seeing it in store and uh, online here soon. All right, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one that's going to be asking for the Fraybill Conservation Folding Net for Christmas. If you have an angler in your life or you're an angler yourself, I think you're definitely going to want to check this out. Look for it soon at a sporting goods store near you and pick one up. It's going to make your storage and your fishing a little bit easier. Justin, thanks for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Awesome, John. Thanks a lot. Campers, adventure seekers, hunters, and foodies. No matter the lifestyle, we can all agree on one thing. Great food and great people are worth remembering. At Camp Chef, we don't just make grills. We create each product knowing that a warm meal is always better when it's shared with those we love. Learn more about Camp Chef grills, smokers, and portable cooking equipment at CampChef.com. That's CampChef.com for a better way to cook outdoors. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nationwide nonprofit organization dedicated to providing hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under who suffer from life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. These adventures make big differences in the lives of those who participate in them, and in many cases are literally a dream come true that brings hope and therapy to their lives. Find out more, get involved, or donate today at huntofalifetime.org. That's huntofalifetime.org. Huntofalifetime.org. country hunters and anglers. You may have heard of us, but what are we about? BHA is the voice for your wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. From national level policy work to boots on the ground projects like public land cleanups, we work across North America to uphold the legacy of our public lands and waters, as well as your opportunity to hunt, fish, and recreate on them. Stand up for public lands and waters and become a BHA member today. Visit backcountryhunters.org. Hunting and fishing are exercises in hope. Before you head into the woods, you hope to tag out on a deer you'll have to field dress. Before you make that first cast, you hope for a big fish to clean and fillet. When your hopes are realized, you'll need a sharp knife. Whether you sharpen that blade on a power sharpener in the shop or a manual sharpener in the field, WorkSharp has the tool for you. Look for WorkSharp products in sporting and stores near you or online at WorkSharpTools.com.
You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our hearts go out to the people that have been impacted by Hurricane Ian. And one group in particular that's really been impacted are those that own boats. And that's why we've got Scott Croft on the line. He's the Vice President of Public Affairs for the Boat Owners Association of the United States, also known as Boat U.S. And he recently authored an article about five things people should do trying to recover their boat post-hurricane. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be on, John. So why don't you run through these briefly, these five bullet points on things folks ought to really be doing if they're trying to get their boat, or at least parts of their boat, post-hurricane. Yeah, let me bring it down and even bring it down to the kind of boat. We're really talking a boat of trailerable size, a small vessel. We're not talking about salvaging a large motor vessel or anything with multi-engines or anything like that. But there are some steps the average person can do after they take care of their home and all their other immediate needs about the boat. And the first one is get permission. And people don't really understand that. Whether the boat is on somebody's property or in a marina or in a park or whatever, you really need to get permission first because I've been down to hurricanes and what happens is you get a lot of fuel spilled. You have sewage. They're not nice places. You certainly cannot smoke. So that's the, you know, you really need to get permission first. You also don't want to be confused as a looter or anything like that. So having that permission is, is most important. Stay off docks. Do not climb on any boat that's unstable or piled up. Definitely no-nos. A boat, let's say, that are on a neighbor's yard, you have easy access, or maybe it's on a beach, or maybe some other location where you can get at it. These are the kind of boats. And then you can't get to the boat, remove the valuables. You know, if you have anything left over, hopefully you've pulled the papers off the boat before the storm. But anything that's valuable, you need to take off. And putting a, a no trespassing sign, bring yourself one of those signs if you can find them. They're, they're selling like hotcakes down there. Uh, just to keep people aware that you have claimed your boat, you know your boat, you put your phone number on there and no trespassing. That way anybody else knows who to contact if, if for instance, the boat doesn't get moved. And then you want to minimize any other damage. If there's anything open or exposed to the weather, if it has a cutty cabin or something like that and the hatch is blown open, put some, put some tape over it. Duct tape is a post-hurricane recovery uh, person's best friend. You know, you want to prevent any any additional damage. The boat's already probably dinged up and scuffed up. You don't want any more. If you have an engine, you may want to consider pickling it. If it got water in it, you can learn how to pickle an engine at boatus.com slash hurricanes. But basically, that's the process of putting fresh water through the engine and then even using kerosene or a diesel fuel to fill up the cylinders. And that will preserve the motor to allow you some time to get repairs because what's going to happen is the repair shops are going to be slammed. Every hurricane... They're very busy. And, of course, the last step, if you have an insurance policy, they should be contacted immediately. Depending on your insurance company, you may get help. We're already out in the field with our folks, our Tobo U.S. Salvers are working with our insurance company, Geico uh, Marine Insurance, as well as other companies. But, you know, you really need to notify your insurance provider immediately and see what help you can get from them. Let me ask you another question, and this isn't for the folks that have boats and down there impacted by Hurricane Ian. Mm-hmm. It's for everybody yeah. else around the country who might be interested in buying a boat. Now, I know after a hurricane, a lot of cars flood the market, and a lot of these cars are compromised, yep. and usually you should stay away from these cars because of rust damage and all sorts of other water damage. Yeah. When it, yeah. Comes, to, when it comes to boats, what do you have to be aware of in terms of a buyer? 
Well, it's buyer beware. After every storm, similar things happen. You'll see a bunch of used boats pop up in the market. Some folks like to fix the boats and then return them into service. But, you know, the challenge, unlike an auto, the challenge with a boat is a lot of states don't have salvage titles. Florida uh, passed a law, a uh, salvage title law, but it's not yet into effect. So if you are buying that boat, you have no idea that that boat may be damaged. And what happens is boats are moved from that state and what they sold in states north, Ohio, Tennessee, Georgia, you know, places that maybe didn't get the brunt of the storm, and you'll start seeing boats pop up there. So, you know, the really the best thing you can do, I tell anybody now more than ever, get an independent surveyor. Don't get a surveyor recommended by whoever's selling the boat. Hire your own boat surveyor, very much like uh, when you purchase a home, they go through the home and look at all the systems. They'll be able to tell you, you know, why is this gel coat mismatched? And that's, you know, that's common. You know, uh, storms like this, we, you know, it's a lot of vessels are merely damaged in the fiberglass. There may be no water intrusion inside. The motor's fine. So they'll get fiberglass repairs. And listen, as long as that's transparent and they're repaired properly, you're good to go. It's, it, it, you, know, you really shouldn't have any trepidation in buying the boat if you have a survey report. Listen, you know, the steering quarter has been repaired. And, you know, what I always tell people is be, on, be right up front. Tell the person you're buying the boat from to ask them where the boat came from. If they start hemming and hawing and they're like, mm, you know, that could be a red flag because, you know, they may have done this thing like shuffle and move it far away in the effort to, uh, you know, not to be branded as a salvage boat. But, you know, like I say, there's not a lot of salvage titling going on, so unfortunately that does occur. Remember, it's as is. So that's why you really, any purchase like this is as is. And you don't want to be caught without knowing, say, something happened to the boat, a pre-existing condition. If you do get insurance and there's a pre-existing condition, your insurance company could deny you issuing a policy. So that's another reason why you need to cover your behind a little bit. But, you know, keep your eyes wide open. For certain buyers, you know, sometimes you can purchase a hurricane-damaged vessel. You can repair it successfully. It does happen all the time, and there are no issues. But just as long as that's transparent, that's the key. Last question for you. Let's tell our listeners a little bit about the organization you work for. Yeah, we're a boat owner association of the United States. We're the nation's largest advocacy, services, and safety group. So we fight for boaters' rights, things like access and getting the right fuel for our boats and making sure we have the freedom to boat on waterways and that we do our part. But the services I, I briefly mentioned where we offer Geico uh, Marine Insurance is our insurance provider. And we also are the nation's largest on-water towing company, uh, Towboat U.S. We have over 600 vessels across the country in Washington as well. Uh, we actually we, we cover up uh, into, into uh, Vancouver and B.C. and the island up there. We come get you 24 hours a day, very much like uh, a AAA for the water. You pay one price and uh, we can come get you no matter what with professional help. And then we're a safety group. We have a nonprofit foundation that offers free online boating safety courses. We do in-person boat training. We have a grant program uh, through the foundation. We have a lot of efforts, clean, drain, dry, to prevent the spread of invasive species. We're heavily involved in the fishing industry to support and conserve our fish stocks. So we really try to make the boater's life better through everything. We have a great magazine that tells you how to add a chart plotter. It's in people, people say our magazine, Boat U.S. magazine, it really helps them get more out of boating because they can look about going to different destinations and perhaps chartering a boat or they're having a problem with their engine and they find out that we've written about it. I'm pretty proud that, you know, when you join Boat U.S., we're going to have something of value for you for that $25 annual membership fee. 
Well, that's not much at all, and you're absolutely right. There is a lot of value to be had. If you want to find out more, folks, just go to BoatUS.com. That's BoatUS.com, and buyer beware when it comes to buying a boat yeah, post be careful. Yep. Scott, thanks so much for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. Glad to be here, John. been telling you about Sportsman's Cove Lodge in Southeast Alaska for a while now, and there's a reason. They are the only Alaska Lodge we talk about in this show. It's because they're truly Alaska's best lodge. The adventure starts with a float plane ride from Ketchikan, after which you'll get the chance to experience some of the best hospitality, food, and wonderful people you'll ever meet. Wildlife is abundant, from bears and deer to eagles and whales, and let's not forget the reason you're here, the fishing. Halibut, salmon, lingcod, rockfish, true cod, and more. It's all waiting for you in abundance at Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Book your trip today at alaskasbestlodge.com. That's alaskasbestlodge.com for Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Come explore the Dalles in Oregon for outdoors fun. Hike amongst the wildflowers, bike our riverfront trail, or visit the Gorge Discovery Center where you can enjoy a live raptor display. Or even check out our National Neon Sign Museum. But don't forget the fishing. We've got salmon, steelhead, bass, walleye, and monster-sized sturgeon waiting just for you. When the day is done, tell those tall tales at one of our wineries, breweries, or restaurants and plan your next adventure. Find out more at explorethedalles.com. You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We've got my old friend Keith Kellogg on the line. He is that globe-trotting hunter who has literally hunted big game all over the world. We are talking not just North America, but Africa, Greenland, Russia, and a number of the former Soviet republics. His latest trip was to Mongolia. Keith, welcome to the show. John, thank you very much. So I've got to ask you, what made you fix your sights, pun intended, on Mongolia, this huge country sandwiched between Russia and China? Yeah, this is one of those hunts that kind of came out of nowhere for me. I've had a gentleman call me in reference to a, a hunt that I had done in Russia. And as international hunters often do, I started chatting with him in reference to other hunts, other countries, and so forth. And he brought up uh, Mongolia, which he and his daughter had just completed and it just kind of took off from there. And uh, you basically you reach out, you know, via internet or email to the uh, outfitter and exchange of information, and it just kind of blossomed from there. What was the outfitter that you used? Oh my God, I, I won't even try to pronounce the names. They are so incredibly <laughs> complicated. Their their language over there. You know, if I spelled it out, it would still take five minutes. It's unreal. But uh, I can give it to you later. You can post it on your website if you want, but I'm not going to try and pronounce it because I would just butcher it. That's okay. That's okay. Suffice it to say, it is an outfitter that is in Mongolia, correct? 
Correct. He lives in the capital city and then travels to different locations to hunt a variety of species throughout the country. Why don't you tell me and our listeners about Mongolia? I understand the country is as big as most of Europe, but people know very little about this country. When I think of Mongolia, especially when it comes to hunting, I always have that that vision of the guy that's on horseback with an eagle and the eagle takes off and takes down a deer. That's literally my entire concept of Mongolia. And that's not necessarily wrong either. There is still some of that that goes on as far as the, the true traditions of Mongolia, which is the, the horsebacks, the nomads, the uh, hunting with the eagles. It's curtailed to a certain degree because uh, I'm not sure if the laws restrict that, but they did have an eagle festival that was people were arriving for when I got there, and they were very excited about seeing the eagles hunt fake game, not real game. But the country itself is gigantic. You're right. It's bordered by Russia to the north, China to the south. And they are big trade reference to like coal and crude oil and other natural resources. They go a lot of it go to China and they get their oil and stuff from Russia. So, you know, it's not unusual for a lot of countries, but it is big. And there's only about 3.3 million people in an extremely large land mass. And uh, though there are an influx of people, it looks to me like they're coming to the cities. I think the younger people may be not so interested in the, the nomadic herder lifestyle. About one-third of the country are still herders, and driving throughout the country, you'll see just these just gigantic herds of sheep and goats and uh, horses and yaks and camels and the cattle in certain degrees if there's enough water. And those people are very nomadic. They may travel up to uh, 300 kilometers a year, pushing their herds to better grass, depending on the time of the year and rain and so forth and so on. I understand that most of the land there in Mongolia is government land where these herders graze their livestock. That is very true, yeah. From what I was told anyway, the the government owns the land, but they allow the herders to travel basically wherever they want for a small fee. I'd be referred to as a tax, I suppose, how much that would be, but it sounds like it's going to be minimal. So they, uh, they live a very nomadic lifestyle. They live in, I guess we usually call them yurts, but ger is what they call them, G-E-R, and uh, it's just like, you know, those large oval tents. And uh, that's kind of what they're, they they live in. And they just move those from location to location. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Now, you actually stayed in one of these yurts, or gurs as they call them there. Why don't you go ahead and describe the layout of a typical gur? Yeah, actually, I stayed in several different locations, and they're all basically the same. It's oval and has a support structure made out of wood for the most part. Uh, very well insulated with, uh, it looks like wool I'll call them blankets, though they're, I'm not sure, sheeting of some sort. And they're very well insulated. They have a, uh, we would refer to it as a wood stove in the middle, but they don't have wood. There's so little in reference to trees there. Maybe in the far north there's a few trees. But in the areas where I was at, they burn dung, camel dung, yak dung, cattle dung, uh, whatever they can kind of come up with. If they can get a few little shrubby, scrubby bushes, they'll burn that. So they won't need to have a, a, a tent that's insulated so it'll maximize their heat. And, it, and they seem to work very well. I was never never cold by any means. What's the food like there? Uh, very simple. A lot of the stuff I was getting was, I, I never asked specifically, well, I can't really communicate with the cook, but uh, I'm assuming it was goat or sheep to a large degree, though there could have been some Ibex mixed in. Uh, if you go to the restaurants, you could have a, you know, a, a choice of, well, things that we would normally wouldn't even see, like horse. Uh, you know, you see horse on the menu and something we wouldn't even think about eating here. And, you know, you can get, you know, quite a variety in the restaurants. But in the simple life there, they would have 
you know, it could be a, a lot of pasta, a lot of rice, maybe some potatoes, some root vegetables, a lot of cucumbers. They seem to be very easy to grow. Tomatoes here and there. And uh, very, very simple. Soups are real common, a uh, real staple. And bread, of course. Uh, all these countries that I've been to, they seem to have a lot of bread. Is there any Western influence at all there? You're seeing more and more of that, I think. The uh, the clothing, there's still some people that wear the tr- more of the traditional clothing, uh, the robes and the, uh, the the riding boots and the, the hats. And you see some of the, the more colorful stuff in the, the tourist shops in reference to costumes. But I think the Western influence is becoming very typical reference to the clothing style. Everybody, it seems like everyone had cell phones now, which I imagine, you know, 10, 20 years ago, that was probably not the case. But everybody's got cell phones. They may not have access to an Internet, but they can at least communicate with friends, family, making plans or whatever. So uh, there must be a network of cell towers there that I didn't really see. But, yeah, cell phones are very common. So uh, And vehicles, instead of using horses to herd their animals now, uh, you see a lot of people riding motorcycles. It's just uh, more economical in reference to the number of miles they need to travel and trying to keep a horse, maintain a horse with the needs for food and water is probably much more difficult than it used to be. Speaking of vehicles, what's the road network like there? Oh, it's horrific. They explained to me in the last decade or so, they've paved a lot of the primary roads that transect the country. The roads that go from side to side, basically, if you think of the roads going north and north and south are perhaps paved, and maybe here and there, something east to west. But most of your travels east to west are basically on dirt roads, and they'll just, you know, over these gigantic plains that could be, I don't know, 50, 60 miles or more wide between mountain ranges, they'll just basically can drive anywhere. It's flat, 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 and pretty smooth for the most part until they build these, you know, ruts from driving. Then they'll just move over a, a car's width or a vehicle's width and start a new one. So uh, you'll just see these just huge transsections of nothingness. Then you'll come to a, a road that's like humps from an old road, humps from another road, and so forth and so on. And the land recovers maybe over time, but it takes a long time. It's a very harsh environment. Fascinating. One last thing. You you wrote an article about this, and I'm going to ask you later where this is going to be submitted. But the people, it's not that they're unfriendly. It's just that they're not particularly sociable, are they? It was very unusual. In most of the countries I go to, you know, people will come out and meet you when you stop at a camp. And in this situation, yeah, the guide or the primary host would maybe come meet you because he's going to be guiding you. But the rest of his family made absolutely no effort. So uh, a grandma, the wife, the children, anybody else that may be there, they made absolutely zero effort at any time to come meet me. And, of course, I would feel not comfortable going to their door and knocking because that's their privacy. So, yeah, it's very unusual. And even when I shook hands, you know, when you meet people, when you're saying goodbye, when you're giving tips and so forth, it seemed like shaking hands was very unusual. They all seemed awkward with that. It was a quite unusual experience. Absolutely fascinating. I love travel, and I love hearing about travel. But if you wouldn't mind sticking around, what I want to talk about next is the actual hunt you went on. Is that all right? Oh, you bet I do. All right, stick around, folks. we got more coming from Keith Kellogg about his hunt for multiple animals in Mongolia.
This portion of the show is brought to you by our friends at WorkSharp. And if you are hunting this fall, you know the importance of a sharp knife. You're going to need it for gutting that animal, butchering that animal, taking the hide off that animal, and there's a good chance you have to sharpen it more than once while you're doing these things in the field. That's why a pocket knife sharpener or the guided field sharpener from WorkSharp are great items to have with you. Whether you're after deer, elk, pronghorn, or bear, a sharp knife helps you get things done after you drop that animal. Look for WorkSharp products at sporting goods stores, hardware stores, and ranch and home stores near you, or online at WorkSharpTools.com. That's WorkSharpTools.com. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nationwide nonprofit organization dedicated to providing hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under who suffer from life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. These adventures make big differences in the lives of those who participate in them, and in many cases are literally a dream come true that brings hope and therapy to their lives. Find out more, get involved, or donate today at huntofalifetime.org. That's huntofalifetime.org. Huntofalifetime.org. Ready to step up to a quality-built rifle or shotgun that's a true classic? Check out Henry Repeating Arms, American-made. There's over 200 models to choose from in a variety of finishes and calibers for hunters and target shooters. Many of these are lever-action models with a look right out of the Old West. Don't be deceived, though. Henry Repeating Arms are modern, rugged, accurate, reliable, and have a lifetime guarantee. Find out more and order a free catalog today at HenryUSA.com. That's HenryUSA.com. We've been telling you about Sportsman's Cove Lodge in Southeast Alaska for a while now. They're truly Alaska's best lodge. Wildlife is abundant from bears and deer to eagles and whales. And let's not forget the reason you're here, the fishing, halibut, salmon, lingcod, rockfish, true cod, and more. It's all waiting for you in abundance at Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Book your trip today at alaskasbestlodge.com. That's alaskasbestlodge.com for Sportsman's Cove Lodge. Welcome back to America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We've got Keith Kellogg back on the line, and he's going to tell you about what he went hunting for in Mongolia. Keith, thanks for sticking around. Oh, you bet. Happy to be here. So you went there for three different species. Let's start off with the main species you were after there. The, the main one I went there is for Altai ibex. And uh, if anybody's hunted the mountains of uh, Asia, uh, you know that their ibex exist in many different locations. And uh, I'm starting to collect a uh, wide assortment of from different countries. It's, it's interesting. You actually harvested two ibex on this hunt, didn't you? I did. I kind of made a little mistake. I uh, got excited to start with and shot a uh, lesser quality ibex than I was hoping for. So versus uh, ruin my hunt completely, my guide said, let's just use your Gobi ibex tag. Uh, for that ibex, which wasn't small, it wasn't tiny, it just wasn't a giant. And then he said, we'll use your other, continue to hunt for your uh, Altai ibex, which is the larger species, and that's what we did to start with. Why don't you describe the ibex to our listeners who don't know what this animal looks like? Oh my goodness, in the goat family, very majestic with these long sweeping horns that got kind of the billies at that time of year, they haven't started their rutting or breeding season, so they're still in the top third of the mountain ranges. So it was quite a physical effort sometimes to get to those areas. You did horses to a certain degree, but more often than not, you're uh, putting your feet 
to work, and your heart and lungs and legs uh, take quite the beating. I want to talk a little bit about getting around there. I mean, yeah, you definitely hoofed it on foot, but the horses there, I understand that a lot of times they don't even have a saddle for them, do they? Well, at least for those guys, they're very adept at riding. Uh, They provided a saddle for me, which was not comfortable by any means, but better than me trying to go bareback. But for them, literally, oftentimes they would have just a piece of braided leather. They braided themselves from, you know, whatever animals, not even a metal bit in it, and they would use that as a a bridle. And they would just basically jump on the back with uh, nothing, nothing, no, no pads, no nothing, just that leather bridle and they're amazing horsemen it was very impressive to watch did you get your trophy ibex i did it took uh five days in some of the most exhausting not singular day but over five day period of maybe the uh, totality of the most exhausting hunt i'd ever been on uh, just because day after day you're climbing in the mountains and descending these horrible mountains and stuff they couldn't get horses up and down if we even had the horses but it took me five days so that was by far the uh the hardest of the the hunts uh, and maybe the most rewarding because you did work for it. But uh, that wasn't the only species I went there for as well. So we can talk about those as well if you'd like real quick. Well, I would because I'm fascinated by one of the species you were after. Elk looked just like a Rocky Mountain elk, but it wasn't, was it? Well, they referred to them as a marl stag. And I'm sure some biologist somewhere could tell you that these marl stag are some of the animals that migrated across the land bridge 100,000 years ago or whatever. But they have quite the population of them there, and they don't get hunted much at all. In fact, the uh, the natives don't seem to hunt them. And I was a little sad to say after I harvested mine, which was quite a trophy, all they were interested in was taking the testicles and the cartilage out of the knees. They did not take any of the meat. You've got to be kidding, Art. No. They didn't want any part of elk meat? That's crazy. And I know. It, it was a one clean, one-shot kill, no adrenaline, no nothing. It would have been prime, really, really good eating. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. You know, in a bull elk, you're basically you're going to get, you know, 300 plus pounds of meat, or maybe up to 400, depending on the size. And so the quality of the, you know, is, I just, I don't know why they'd prefer to eat goat and sheep versus eat elk, but uh, that seems to be what happened. You know, there's probably German and English and French fishermen who think the same thing about us when it comes to the common carp that we treat as a trash fish and will often throw <laughs> up on the bank and just leave it there, and they prize it for, for the food. And maybe it's the same yeah. way there where we prize elk, especially the backstrap, and, and they just see no value in it. Yes, yeah, that's kind of amazing. You know, still, you know, you can't question their culture is what they do. Unfortunately, uh, you hate to see that because as a hunter who really enjoys wild game meat, I hate to see it go to waste, but unfortunately, that's what happened there. Weird, but true. But as in Rome, or in this case, as in Mongolia, I guess that's what you do. The last species is one, when I think of the gazelle, I think of Africa. I don't think of Mongolia. Tell us about this hunt. Yeah, they have uh, both a white-tailed gazelle and a black-tailed gazelle there, and they live in these wide-open expanses, and apparently uh, our, our goal would be to intercept the herds. And the herds can be anywhere from a hundred up to hundreds, plural. And there was a few times they met up with other herds, and I might have seen six to eight hundred in a herd. Uh, it was unreal. Never seen anything like it. It felt like I was in the plains of Africa, but I've never seen a concentration of animals like that. And that made it very difficult to hunt because it is so wide open. There's, you know, the only brushes, uh, little grass or scrubby things that are maybe a, a foot tall at best. So trying to get close enough for a clean shot was very difficult. And we had many, many stocks of these amazing uh, 
gazelles, and you got that many eyeballs looking at you and as fast as they were. Uh, it was very frustrating. Well, frustrating. It was very fun because you're out there hunting, but uh, frustrating the fact that after a while you couldn't get it. But it, it took us a while, but eventually uh, on the second day of hunting the gazelles, I did get one. So it was, it was beautiful. It's going to make a nice addition to my trophy room. Sounds like an amazing hunt. And I know those are the animals you harvested. Are there any other animals that people go to Mongolia for? There are three Marco Polo sheep species that are maybe the most exotic sheep species and the largest ones in the entire world. Of course, some of those run from uh, uh, up to six figures plus, so you're over $100,000 for one animal. But ones I've seen on television, I've never seen them in person, are amazing. So, yeah, it's a hunter's paradise there. The uh, elk hunting is off charts. I saw 35 to 40 bulls, six-point bulls, before I took the one I took. Saw wolves. You can hunt wolves there. There's lots of foxes. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, the hunting itself is... Uh, uh, off the charts is, is crazy good. Sounds like an absolutely incredible experience. Last question. Uh, you sent me the rough draft of the article you wrote about this, which is what led to this phone call and this interview. Is this going to be published somewhere, I hope? Oh, maybe. You know, I've always been kind of a pattern to uh, uh, send a story to my friends, and more often than not, I just kind of let it sit there. And I know you've encouraged me to send in some stories to SCI or Sports of Field or different magazines, but never really been my in the forefront of my mind. I, I more just like to share my stories with my friends. So we'll see. We'll see. Well, I hope you will submit it. And even if you don't submit it to your friends, I greatly appreciate the fact that you shared it with our listeners today. What an incredible experience. And folks, if you want to find out more about hunting in Mongolia, uh, we will post that link on our website. And you can also just Google Hunt Mongolia. There are a couple of outfitters. And uh, again, very primitive but exotic place to hunt some incredible game species. Keith, thanks for sharing this with us today on America Outdoors Radio. You bet, John. Have a good day. Next, I want to tell you something that our friends at Henry Repeating Arms are doing. They're excited to announce that the Henry Golden Boy Silver Anniversary Edition rifle is now available, and all proceeds from these rifles is going to various foundations and organizations supported by the charitable branch of Henry Repeating Arms called Guns for Great Causes. Production is limited to one thousand of these golden boy silver anniversary edition rifles and the plan is to raise a total of one million dollars that will be donated to children's hospitals military veterans and first responder organizations shooting sports hunting heritage and wild conservation advocates these rifles are built on the award-winning Golden Boy platform, and this Silver Anniversary Edition features a nickel-plated receiver cover, a barrel band, and butt plate. In sharp color contrast, the butt stock and forestock are fashioned from black-stained hardwood with a durable, weather-resistant coating, not unlike the all-weather rifles found elsewhere in Henry's product catalog. The middle of the butt stock features an inlaid nickel-plated medallion stamped with the iconic Henry Repeating Arms Frontiersman, and 25th Anniversary logo. An engraving on the upper tang of the receiver is filled with silver paint and reads, Silver Edition 1 of 1000. Other specifications are borrowed directly from the popular Golden Boy, including a tube magazine with a capacity for 16 rounds of 22 long rifle or 21 rounds of 22 short, a 20-inch blued steel octagon barrel, 
and fully adjustable sights. These limited edition silver anniversary rifles are selling for $1,000 each, and they just went on sale on October 13th, so you will want to hurry if you want one of these. Definitely a collectible firearm and a wall hanger. You'll be proud to own and show off to your friends and family. If you want to check it out and order one today, the website to go to is henryusa.com. That's henryusa.com. And don't forget to ask for your free decals and catalog while you're there. On that note, we've got to wrap things up. I'd like to thank our guest, Justin Brolyard, who told us about that really innovative net from Fraybill. Scott Croft from Boat US, who gave us some great advice about dealing with boats that have been through hurricanes. And my longtime friend and globetrotting hunter, big game hunter Keith Kellogg, who shared his incredible hunting experience in Mongolia with you today. Here's hoping you get out for some incredible hunting and boating and fishing too in the days ahead. Here's hoping you're also blessed and healthy and do remember this. It is your country and you're outdoors, so get out there and enjoy it. (laughs) 